And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 94. And this is the first episode of 2020. We're about to hit our 100th episode and our two-year anniversary. It's crazy. Here's to another year. We're going to do bigger, better, lots of more things. I was Italian right there. <laughs> <laughs> you even kind of did your hand. So pizza. Extra large. <laughs> They don't call me Large Marge for nothing. <laughs> Again, no one. Literally no one. <laughs> Timothy does. Only when I do Large Marge from uh, Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> it's just because it scares her. She's scary. You know who might call me Large Marge? New Patreoners. Oh, do they though? <laughs> I don't know. Let's ask them. <laughs> what do you think, uh, Allison L. from Colorado? Ashley G. from Washington. Amanda L. from North Carolina. Franny P. from California. And Ashley S. from Arizona. Welcome to Patreon, a.k.a. The Creepinati, a.k.a. Patreoner, a.k.a. All the Things. And if you want to join the Patreon-ers... <laughs> <laughs> Go to www.patreon.com forward slash the APC podcast. And in case you missed it, we are doing Sinister Sightings weekly now, y'all. Yes. And I'm so freaking pumped because you know those are some of my favorite stories. I know. Me too. My story's kind of a doozy. Oh, shit. So I hope yours is kind of more lighthearted. Well, we're just going to start it off with a fucking bang then. Yeah. Well, Debbie T. from the Facebook group suggested a topic, and I was like, you know what? I've vaguely heard of this, so I'm going to check it out, and it was more than I had heard of, for sure. We're going to be talking about some folklore that's based in Michigan, Ohio, some North Carolina, and Connecticut. Some call them cryptids, but I feel wrong for calling them that, so we're not going to classify them as cryptids, but we're going to be talking about melon heads. Are those people who really like the band Blind Melon? (laughs) (laughs) What? I cannot believe you actually knew the band name. (laughs) (laughs) Because that song makes our stomach hurt. Um, I'm going to go with No. (laughs) No, mm-mm, not them at all. <laughs> Who they are, they are thought to be small humanoids with really big, bald heads. But it's like the brain part of their head that's really big. They have deformed arms and legs and really jagged teeth. And usually glowing eyes, either red or orange. 90% of the time, they are in hiding. But when they do come out, nothing good ever comes of it. They're usually described as being aggressive and feral creatures. And then when they do venture out that 10% of the time, it's at night. And usually using the the darkness of night as kind of like a weapon so they can go undetected and get into mischief or go and hunt things, or people. What? They are thought to survive by mutilating and eating small animals. Ew. And also human flesh. Ew. <laughs> Double ew. <laughs> With a side of ew. <laughs> 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 
They are also said to terrorize and even kill and eat the people who wander into their territory, even if it's by accident. So some of the people who have disappeared in those areas, those states that I mentioned before, Ohio, Michigan, Connecticut, all of those, when people disappear, sometimes if it's by locations that melon heads are supposedly around, they will blame melon heads for these people's disappearances. What? I do want to say the reason I don't want to label them as cryptids like some people do is because they are human or were human at some point until something went terribly wrong. Allegedly. The different states do have different origin stories, but they all basically start out with the melonheads being human and being mistreated in some way. In Michigan, the melonheads are said to be seen around Felt Mansion, and they were originally children with hydrocephalus. Okay. Which is water on the brain. Mm -hmm. And they lived at an insane asylum, which was called Junction Insane Asylum, which was near Felt Mansion. Along with that origin story, it says that the children endured physical and emotional abuse at the insane asylum. Did you say a year for this? No. Okay. Because I'm like, fucking, of course, these poor kids were at an insane asylum for fucking hydrocephalus. Right. Yep. Which we know from the other asylum stories I've done, like, anything different. Mm Mm-hmm. It was like, well, put them in there. Mm Mm-hmm. It's like, cool, cool, okay. Ugh. Anyway, and yeah, they were treated terribly all the time. Because when you put someone away and never check on them, never do anything, there's no accountability for the people who take care of them. Right. And so they can just do whatever the fuck they want. Yeah. And they will, especially in a place like that, that you know that the staff is underpaid, Mm -hmm. underappreciated, overworked, understaffed. All the things. Yeah, and you know it has to be stressful. Yes. And so they're just, you know, sometimes they're just doing the best they they can just to get by. Yeah. But then sometimes in those positions, you attract the people who Mm -hmm. are going to do bad things. Right. And then if you think about it, these children who have nothing wrong with them Mm -hmm. are with other people who do have, you know, varying... Levels of, like, mental illness kind of thing. Yes. And so, if they're used to whatever kind of outburst or mm-hmm. episodes or whatever, and then these kids are just being kids, mm-hmm. you know, like, they're going to treat them the same as an outburst. And it's like, it's not the same. Maybe an adult going through a psychotic break. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a kid having a tantrum or, you know, just, like, mm-hmm. wanting to play with the ball some more or whatever. And it's like... They're not the same. Yeah. So, I don't know. It just is heartbreaking. So, when you said, like, is your story light? And I'm like, no, just because of the nuances of the stories. Well, so after all of that that we just discussed, they said that these children became feral. And, yeah. And they were like, okay, we can't deal with them. So... We're just going to release them into the forest. If they survive, they survive. If not, good riddance. 
Oh, my God. And that's what they did. And how they survived is killing what they could and, you know, all of the things. And then it just came to what, you know what I mean? Like, they knew no better. Another version of this legend say that the children lived in the mansion itself. They were still treated poorly by doctors, all of the things. And so they came up with a plan and they were going to kill the doctor who was torturing them and then escape the mansion. Well, they had no place to hide the body. So they cut him up into small pieces and they just like hid him around the mansion. Allegedly. Allegedly. Well, rumors started circulating that teenagers had broken in and saw ghosts of these children and claimed to see shadows or remnants of the doctor's murder. It was kind of like a projector, but it was coming through like the lights from an open door. Yeah, almost like a hologram kind of. Yeah, perfect. I was going to say from Anastasia. Do you remember that cartoon? Never saw it. That I mean, movie? I, ne- I mean, I know what you're talking about, but I never saw it. Oh, my God. I love that movie. I feel like you knew that I've never seen it. I've never seen anything. Apparently not. That movie's so good. Mm, is it? Yes. How do you know you haven't seen it? It's about fairies, right? No. Oh. Anastasia. <laughs> oh, okay. Because <laughs> saying the name definitely makes you like, oh, yeah, I've seen it. All right, so now we go to Ohio. And in Ohio, the Melonhead stories are usually associated with Kirtland, which is a suburb of Cleveland. Their local lore is that the Melonheads were originally orphans, and by either being kidnapped or a secret deal with the mental hospital that he worked at, they were acquired by this doctor known as Dr. Crow, and sometimes Dr. Melonhead. I know, I know. Either way, however he he managed to get them, he subjected them to several different bizarre experiments, and they all focused on the brain and the head, which... Hence. Yeah. Extra large heads, melon heads. And it was basically due to the severe trauma from all of these experiments, so their heads would be deformed or misshapen. But it goes a little further in that some of his experiments included lobotomies. Of course it did. Uh Uh-huh. And so they said that the melon heads were docile because, hello. You destroyed their frontal lobe. Yeah. And how people saw them is that sometimes they would you know, managed to escape from the place, but they were kind of just like wandering around because they had no cognitive faculties, basically. Yes. Thank you. And so he would just round them back up because wouldn't take him long to catch up to him. And if this, if, okay, all this is allegedly, because this is a folklore origin story, but if people in the community saw them, they would be like, oh, well, that's because You know, they're like that because they're there. Mm -hmm. They don't think that... He's caused that. Yes. Mm -hmm. They think that they're there because of it, not what you just said. And there are some variations where the children were already suffering with hydrocephalus, and then he injected more fluid into their brains 
doing more experiments. And so they developed large hairless heads and their bodies were deformed. Well, they did escape. And just like in the Michigan one, they killed the doctor, Dr. Crow, burned the orphanage. They didn't scatter his body parts around this time, though. Well, that was nice of them. Mm -hmm. Less to clean up. (laughs) Well, but they go to the forest because that's what they know. And supposedly they feed on babies. What? Where do the babies come from? I don't know. You know, they always have to make something bad, you know. baby what? Babies. And leave it open. Because baby anything is bad. Mm Mm-hmm. In Connecticut, again, different variations. One says in Fairfield County, there is an asylum. And it was for the criminally insane. And it burned down in 1960. It pretty much killed... All of the staff and most of the patients, but they had 10 to 20 inmates who were unaccounted for. And of course, they escaped to the woods. So these are like normal people, like quote unquote normal people, but they got the Melonhead's appearance because they resorted to cannibalism to survive and because they then resorted to inbreeding to populate. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And they said that resulted in them developing hydrocephalus. Hmm. So medical person, does that normally occur? Well, so they ate each other, but yet that doesn't make any fucking sense. Look, some were good for eating. Some, some were good for procreating. Uh-huh. Some made dinner, some made babies. <laughs> but they didn't do both. That's some Handmaid's Tale shit right there. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what causes hydrocephalus, but uh, I'm guessing cannibalism isn't one of them. <laughs> Another variation is that the Melonheads are descendants of a colonial era family from Shelton Trumbull. And that family was banished after they were accused of witchcraft. And of course, where did they retreat? To the woods. Yes. Again, in this variation, their appearance is due to inbreeding, and they do feast upon humans. They usually don't go hunt for them, though. It's if they come into their territory. All right. And then there's another origin story, and it's pretty much all about a top-secret government project. Of course it is. It's just, just crazy enough that you can't believe it, but it might be true. Right? In this account, it takes place in Lake County and usually in the woods, which makes sense because top secret. hmm Well, they were subjected to experiments on their brain, which, of course, caused them to become deformed. Well, over time, some escaped and made their way to the town and cannot have that. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, what the hell is this? Where do they come from? You know, all the things. Too many questions. So the government covered it up, but they didn't want, like, widespread panic either of these creatures now, as they call them, Mm -hmm. with these huge heads and deformed bodies because... Who's got time for that? But again, like you said, I mean, it's... It's silly, and you're like, okay, but then you're also like, I mean... 
back in the day. I mean, still now. I'm not saying, like, it's better now. But, like, also, I don't know. I don't put anything past anything anymore. I mean, you never know. And then we know that there are doctors who, quote, unquote, for the good of people, do terrible experiments to people who they deem less than normal people, i.e. the doctor from the Nazi camps. Yeah, absolutely. Hence, all research projects have to go through IRB approval, which is like the what internal review board. Like, so universities and hospitals have their own IRB, but you have to submit your proposal to even get approval to do your research because of shit like this, because people yeah. did shitty experiments on people and it has to be approved so they can make sure you're not doing shady shit. Right. That's going to put people in danger. Yeah. Especially when it comes to medical research. Right. So, again, I'm not saying any of that's true because it's all origin stories for folklore. However, there are some personal stories, eyewitness testimony, and I'm about to tell you. So, there you go. But I'm just saying, out of all of those, they all sound plausible to me that kids were different Mm -hmm. because they were not deemed normal. They were atypical. Yes. And... Well, but that's, again, I feel like we said this already, but that's the whole thing with folklore and all of that, is that it is rooted in some fact. Mm -hmm. There's been workers who have paved different streets, and they've heard voices coming from the woods, and they say that it's human-like, but not human. Then there were some tree experts, and they were testing some trees in the forest, and they saw strange figures lurking in the bushes so we have like various little stories like that but that could be anything and you know how i said these legends were centralized in those certain states well many of them have places called melonhead roads which it's different roads where they are supposed to be like clustered in milford it's zion hill road in trumbull it's velvet street which is a.k.a. Dracula Drive. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that's because some of the legends say that melonheads would bite and then consume whoever entered their territory. But the biting, you know, we get, mm-hmm. and that's where we get Dracula Drive from. Gotcha. And in Shelton, it's Sawmill City Road. All right. Story time. In 2009, from Creepy Cleveland Archives, It was a guy whose name is J, like J-A-Y, and then B. He said he grew up living next to the woods in Ohio, and he had an encounter. He said it was in the fall around 10 p.m., and he heard his dog bark, so he ran outside to see what was going on. When he got outside, he saw his dog, and it was just laying there bleeding. (gasps) Yes. Oh. And when he looked you know, looked around to see, like, what happened. He saw a small figure with very pale skin and a large head, and it was running into the woods. So the next morning, he went out to follow the tracks, but they stopped near a creek, and he couldn't find any more than that. And I don't know if the dog survived. Honestly, I don't know. There's one more account from one of the Melonhead Roads, and it's in the 1980s, 
And it's a group of girls from the Notre Dame High School in Fairfield. And the girls whose names, Megan, Sue, Kim, Deb, Jen, and Karen, they were all out joyriding on a Friday night, as one does. Mm-hmm. I mean, we did. Oh, absolutely. Listening to music, smoking all the cigarettes. Well, well you didn't smoke, well, but I, I didn't did. smoke, but I sang all of the fucking songs. Tiffany and I smoked enough for all of us. <laughs> and I waved at random people. Oh, my God. Yes, she did. You'd have to lock her fucking window. Mm-hmm. Be like, dare me, dare me. I ain't daring you. Did y'all dare me? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, did she do it anyway? <laughs> they decided to ride down Velvet Street, which we know is Dracula Drive. And, of course, they were going to look for the Melonheads. They parked the car, leaving the headlights on, and then set out to go into the woods. They walked about 100 feet down the road, and they were laughing and then, you know, trying to spook each other with ooh, scary stories of the melon heads, all of the things. What I'd be doing to you. Yeah. Well, then they all shut up because they heard the car door open, then slam shut. Then it started. And the headlights are on still because that's, you know, how they were seeing. Yeah. They all turn and look and the car is headed straight to them. Oh, my God. Well, they scatter into the tree line. And when they kind of like look back when the car goes by them, they see what they described as child-sized humanoids who were dressed in raggedy clothes And they had humongous heads with wide eyes that glowed with an orange light. And they said that they could hear them giggle and they just drove off into the night. Hmm. However, one could say that these girls were doing something with some boys or some shit. And, you know, someone stole their car and they were like, it was the melon heads. We were on Dracula Drive. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's what it is. Or they were out there doing drugs, and that's what they thought they saw. True. True. Or it was really an alien, and now Melonheads are getting all the blame, and it's actually aliens. Yeah, or that. (laughs) Plausible. Definitely the aliens, and not them doing acid. (laughs) Well, there's one story that kind of goes hand in hand. With a government cover-up kind of thing, but you'll... Okay, I'll just tell you. Okay. Picture it. Wycliffe, Ohio, 1964. Group of teenagers, they were minding their own business, out for a joyride, doing their own thing, but they were in prime location for melon heads. Well, all of a sudden, they passed by this creature who was very bizarre, your favorite word, but who was very bizarre looking who was standing on the side of the road and this creature just stared at them. Well, they slowed the car down to get a better view. And then the creature, of course, jolts off into the woods. Like, can't catch me on the sticky cheese, man. (laughs) (laughs) You remember that book? Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. I was thinking like a squirrel. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God, that's funny. Well, the teens were like, oh, yes, the fuck we can. And they start chasing after the creature. Well, they're going through brush, trees, all of the things. And they come to a clearing. And there's an old-fashioned house just in these woods. 
Well, there's an older couple who's sitting on the porch, and there's several kids who fit the melon head description, just playing around, you know, like it was normal life for them. Well, one of the teens is like, uh, what? Yeah. (laughs) And the older man said that he was once a nuclear scientist during World War II, and that the radiation that he had been exposed to had caused his children to be deformed with their heads, you know, being larger. Like a birth defect. Yeah. And he said that the government paid him to keep quiet about it and then relocated them into this secluded area so they would, you know, be kept a secret. So the man was like, look, do you promise not to tell anyone about us? Because, again, like, we're not... We don't want any harm done to us. And we don't, you know, like, we're we're leaving y'all alone. Y'all leave us alone. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of thing. And, of course, the kids are like, sure, sure, sure. And immediately told all their friends how they found the melon heads. And so then a whole group of people were like, let's go out and find them. Well, they were driving around the roads and stuff. And then they were stopped by some police officers. Sidebar, if the government paid this guy all this money to keep his mouth shut, he's not going to be like, so, first group of random kids that come through and then spill everything. Right. Okay, continue. The guy could be me. True. And be like, I was waiting for this day. Let me tell you what fucking happened. Because, I mean, that would be me. Legitimately, that would be you. Mm -hmm. Well, while they were out riding around... They were stopped by police officers. And the kids were like, what the hell? Because they're out in the middle of nowhere. Well, the cops ask them what they're doing. Because it's kind of suspicious. It's like a large group of teenagers. Cannot be good. Mm-hmm. And they brought up melon heads and stuff. And the police were like, look, that's an urban legend. They don't, They don't exist. But it's best you head back. And so Hmm. the teens refused. They were like, no, we are still going to check it out. Like, that's what we want to do. Like, we're just having fun. We're not hurting anyone. We're not trespassing. I mean, we're not breaking any laws. Well, then allegedly the police took them to the station and their parents had to come pick them up. But that made them all be like, hmm, Is there really a cover-up going on? Because, like, why the fuck were they so adamant about us not searching for them? Mm -hmm. Like, all of the things. Because who knows? The government might have paid them for protection of this family. Yeah. And the guy was like, beep, boop, 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 boop. Hey, some kids came by. All of the things, you know, like, whatever. And so the police were out trolling. Who knows? This is pre- Security cameras, like, in every house. Yeah. And then there's an account that was published in Weird U.S., your travel guide to America's local legends and best-kept secrets. And that was in 2001. And this account shows that they're not always childlike and small. Hmm. Tony said he had been out traveling in Ohio trying to find the truth behind the legends of the Melonheads. He hadn't found anything, you know, like he... It was like, well, you know, I mean, they do say they hide, you know, like, Mm -hmm. I mean, you want to believe what you want to believe. 
Well, as he was about to just give up, he said he looked out of one of his windows and could see a creature running alongside the car. And he said he was going 40 or 50 miles per hour. Wow. But he said this creature was like 5'7", not childlike at all. But he did have spindly limbs and an extremely large head. And apparently it kept pace with the vehicle for a while until he just decided to go back into the woods. Tony said the melonhead was wearing brown pants that were ripped up and the seams looked like they were held together by corn husk. And he was wearing a white shirt with like brown and red stains everywhere. And the head was like a light brown tint. Two holes in the side of the head, which he thought were the ears. And Hmm. uh, he said when he turned the curve is when the creature jumped into the woods. And that's the only time he's ever seen anything like that. And he was like, I want to say that's a melon head because, I mean, it looked like a melon head. Yeah. But it also didn't fit it exactly. However, I want to be like, what? I mean... Children age. Yeah. So, you know what I mean? And the last account comes from this woman named Kelly Top Bedrosian. And she said that she was with a group of friends and they were looking around Felt Mansion in Michigan because it's allegedly haunted. We now know, like, by melon heads and whatnot. And if it did have all the horrible things that happened there, it should be haunted. Well, then she happened to see a man. He was standing, you know, kind of far away. But she was like, something is off about him. And she was like, he's got a really big head. That's what she said? Yeah, literally. You went dirty. I immediately thought Big Bad Wolf or Little Red Riding Hood. Oh, my God. My, what a big head you have. Oh, my God. (laughs) Of course. That is so us. Yes. Well, and then he started walking toward them. So one of her friends yelled, hello, you know, just to try to be friendly. They don't know who this guy is. Right. You know, it might be someone with the felt mansion. Who knows? And all they got was a loud grunt and he continued to walk towards them. But now he's picked up the pace. And then they were like, hmm. Lego. And so they all started running towards their car. They were like, you know what? Don't look back. Let's just go. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, that's what we would do too, right? Mm -hmm. All right, y'all. And since we know that Carrie doesn't believe a word of any of this. I mean, mm -hmm. you're not wrong. Here's something I found on damnedconnecticut.com. And it's an article written by Ray Bendici in March 2010. And he said that he found an article a few years back, and it was talking about a group of Appalachian mountain people in, like, the Tennessee, Kentucky, Eastern Virginia area, and they were called the Melungeon. And they are believed to be mixed-race descendants of European outcasts, freed slaves, and Native Americans. So, basically, the people that, that didn't fit into regular society. It was like they were already predispositioned to be the low, like, outcast of 
society. And so they decided to just stay to themselves. Again, with the, hey, we're going to leave society alone. We're, we don't fit with them. They don't value us. So we're just going to have our own society right here in this safety of our group. Yeah. Well, the article also mentioned that Melungeon was sometimes, quote, bastardized into Melonhead. Mm. And so it's possible that it could have been these people who were just living independently in the backwoods, you know, Mm -hmm. and they got branded as, you know, damaged, deranged, different. And that over time, the Melungeon got changed to Melonhead, and that's all they knew, and that's how it kind of stuck. And, of course, we talked about this before. People fear what they don't understand. Mm -hmm. And that's what he said in this article, and I was like, yes, underline, underline, highlight, yes, yes, yes. And so these people, this group, were made to be the boogeyman. Mm Mm-hmm. And to quote Ray, he said, that ignorance was passed down through the years and the rest, as they say, is legendary. Wow. So just like you said, I mean, it could be rooted in this. Mm-hmm. And it's sad. It It's more sad than, than scary, of course. You know, it's just like, oh, heartbreaking. Any of those origin stories are heartbreaking. Yep. Like the kids didn't have a chance. The people didn't have a chance. And there's nothing wrong with them. But society deemed them atypical, like Mm -hmm. you said, and therefore less than. Yeah. And we see that today in your true crime stories where you talk about marginalized people who are often made scapegoats Mm -hmm. for problems, who are victimized continuously. And and victimized not only from individuals, but systematically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, shit, your shit was sad. I know. And, and my shit's sad, too. Great. We're starting this year off on a low note. hmm So, well, you know what? We can only go up from here. Maybe. Don't dare me. <laughs> I just want to start mine with a trigger warning. It has to do with kids has to do with mental illness has to do with therapy wait should we have trigger warning before mine because literally all of that seems to be in mine yours was folklore okay so while yes i don't know and and y'all may not think this one is as heavy as i do but this one just fucking crushed my soul okay on november 19th 1989, in Lincolnton, North Carolina, a baby girl named Candace Elmore was born. Candace was the first born to her parents, Angela and Todd, who went on to have two more kids, a baby brother named Michael and a baby sister named Chelsea. There was a lot of turmoil in the house with alcoholism, abuse, neglect, and so social services actually had to step in and removed Candace and her siblings from her parents' house. Oh, gosh. The three kids were separated into three different foster homes, which is fucking heartbreaking and horrible. 
such a disservice to the kids. It is. They have been through enough trauma being removed from their parents. Don't take their siblings away from them. Right. And I understand. Well, I don't understand because I've never had the job. But, like, I know that we have social workers who are listening who are probably like, sometimes it's unavoidable. And I totally understand that. Yeah. You know, there's places, especially because they were boy and girl. I know that there are a lot of rules as it relates to sharing rooms and all of that. And so to find a house that has the separate bedrooms and all that, I understand that social workers work incredibly hard for very little pay, especially for the level of education that it requires. Could not have said it better myself. When she was five, Candace's parents' parental rights were terminated. She stays in the system for about two more years when she finally gets adopted. She gets adopted by Jean Elizabeth Newmaker. Fake last name. <laughs> it's, it's not. <laughs> so Candace was adopted, but she wasn't adopted with any of her siblings. Jean was single. She was a nurse practitioner, a pediatric nurse practitioner. So you're like, who better to, you know, to adopt yeah. a child than a freaking pediatric nurse practitioner. Right. She lived in Durham, North Carolina. She came from a very prominent family. They were, you know, well-to-do. Kept up with the Joneses. No, like, but like for real though, because it said like, even in high school, she was part of like the, like the cool kids, you know, Mm -hmm. and they were, they all had money. So they had all these like expensive toys and stuff. So yes, absolutely. Keeping up with the Joneses. I do want to say that some of the stuff says that she is a pediatric nurse, not a nurse practitioner. So I'm not really sure which one. And it's a small detail. But again, if you're a nurse practitioner, you'd be like, mm, she wasn't a nurse practitioner, you know? Yeah. When Candace was adopted, Jean changed her name to Candace Elizabeth Newmaker. She got a new birth certificate. And on the birth certificate, it put Jean as her mom. And that her birthplace was Durham. Like, it was a wow done deal. You know, she was Jean's. And Jean loved Candace. She doted on her, bought her gifts, sent her to the best schools. But Candace just didn't receive love in that way. She grew up with all of this trauma, all of this abuse and neglect. And so... She had a hard time with the attention, you know, Mm. and if you think about it, too, she's, you know, by the time she was adopted, she was seven and she had been in and out of foster care. You know, her her parents' parental rights had been terminated. She just had a lot of trauma. Yeah. And so she had a hard time with the transition. She had a hard time accepting Jean's love, the gifts, all the things. She just had a hard time, as you would expect a child to do who's been through all of that. Over the next two years, it's said that Candace's behavior worsened. She didn't get along well with her peers. She would, you know, always snap at them, being like, don't look at me. Don't talk to me. You know, just again, she had a lot of trauma that she needed to deal with. So again, could you imagine going to these big, fancy schools when you're used to trying to figure out what you were going to eat? Kids are fucking resilient as shit. Yeah. But that's hard. Yeah. So, Jean was like, okay, Candace needs help. I can't give her the help that she needs. So, she started taking her to a psychiatrist. She said that Candace had basically a bad attitude. Candace's psychiatrist actually said 
This is a quote. I don't think she was a normal, happy kid. She could smile and be real cute, and then she could be mean. So between Jean and the psychiatrist, they were doing everything they could to help her. They tried antidepressants, antipsychotics, amphetamines to help with her ADHD, all of these things, and nothing was working with her. Meanwhile, me as the OT is like, mm, yeah, she probably had some sensory deficits and needs fucking OT. Right. Okay. Yeah. Mm, let's uh, be have kind of a little bit of a holistic approach here, guys. But okay. Jean said that Candace had started like playing with matches. She was like a firebug is, you know, kind of what she was quoted saying. And that she killed their goldfish, which I feel like is very easy to do. Did she do it maliciously? Did right. she like flush it? What'd she do? I need more details on that. But, you know, when I read this stuff from Jean and the psychiatrist, it almost feels like they didn't give her a chance. Like, she could have had some very, like, malicious behavior that clearly we're not going to understand from the articles that we've got. Nor were we in these psychiatry sessions. But, I mean, to say she wasn't a normal, happy kid, no, she's not. Right. No, you're fucking right. She grew up in an abusive and neglectful home in which her parents' parental rights were terminated. She was separated from her siblings and sent to fucking foster care. So, no, you're right. She's not a typical child. Mm-hmm. So, let's help her. Well, Jean being the medical practitioner that she was, she's like, let's figure this out. Like, you know, she's doing her research. She's trying to figure out what can she do so when Jean's looking all this up, she finds a diagnosis that she's like, this is Candace. And she decides that Candace has attachment disorder. So basically, in a nutshell, do you remember like in every single psych class that you ever had when you learned the Erickson stages of development and the very first one in infancy had to do with attachment? Yes. And you saw that. Do you remember? Of course, I can't fucking remember it. But, you know, the experiment with the monkeys with one monkey was just like a cold cage. Mm-hmm. And it had the nipple for breastfeeding. But it was just a cold cage. But the the other, quote, monkey was softer and had the blanket and felt more cozy and so when they put in the real life monkey, it would go feed on the, the cold caged one, but then immediately leave that one and go to the more comforting one. Yeah. Because that's part of the attachment. It's part of meeting the needs, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So as part of that attachment, infants' basic needs have to be met. An infant cries, they get picked up, they get comforted, they get fed, they get changed they get burped whatever it is that they need their basic needs are met and comforted and so that helps them form secure attachments that carry on through life with all of their relationships that's the idea so with attachment disorder kids who experienced a lot of neglect early on in life again it's specifically in those ages like infant to like three years old yeah it can even have to do with like changing of caregivers, like if it happens a lot or just any of that kind of disruption can cause that. You also see this a lot in kids in 
orphanages in foreign countries that are basically just like all in their cribs and mm. they never get love. They they only get like picked up to be fed and then they're left in their cribs basically the rest of the time. They never get play with an adult. They never get loved on and rocked and all those things. And so they have a harder time as they get older developing relationships and even stuff with like their gross motor and fine motor skills and problem solving and all of that because all of that's foundation starts in infancy with play. Well, there's a lot of different theories and treatments for attachment disorder which we're not really get, we're not going into. But Jean was like this is it. Like this is what Candace has. So Jean goes to a convention about attachment disorder because she is like in it to win it. Yeah, she's like I got I have got to help this child. Like I've got to learn more. While she's there, there's other parents there, and she's listening to these stories, and she's just like, holy fuck, this is it. So in 1999, she goes to yet another convention. And while she's at this convention, she meets another therapist, and they're talking about Candace, and that therapist is like, oh yeah, she definitely has attachment disorder. In fact, I would say her attachment disorder is fairly severe. Never even Mm -hmm. met Candace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So this guy who thinks that he's diagnosed Candace without ever fucking seeing her says, you need to talk to Connell Watkins. And Connell Watkins was a psychotherapist in Evergreen, Colorado, an unlicensed psychotherapist. Oh, my good heavens. Uh-huh. And Watkins worked with... Dr. Foster Klein. So these two had a lot of theories on attachment disorder. And again, this is very simplistic of say, of you know, how I'm saying this. But again, if it is directly related to the treatment during infancy of needs not being met, that kind of thing, their theory was that if you could recreate what that child missed in infancy, you were basically hitting the reset button on their brain. Oh, good heavens. Right. So basically the theory is you reset their brain and you take away the attachment disorder. That's the theory. I'm doing a slow blink. Mm-hmm. In January of 2000, Jean was determined that she was going to get Candace in some good, like almost like immersion type therapy to get her over this attachment disorder. So she signed Candace up for this two-week therapy extravaganza (laughs) in Colorado. I feel like this is a cult thing with this whole therapy thing. Like, they're not legit, but they're legit, but they're not. And it gets a lot of money and will solve your problems, but not really. By a lot of money, you mean $7,000 for this two weeks. Mm $7,000? For two weeks? Uh Uh-huh. And, you know, here's the thing. It's rooted in some truth. That's the problem. Yeah. And, the, and But that's what every, same with your this, your story. It's rooted in some truth. So it's like, no, that, that kind of makes sense, you know? Well, their therapy was all about rebirthing. So now what I'm picturing is basically the handmaid's tale, but instead of having sex, the wife is... Gonna be like in a tub and like 
whoosh out the grown person. Kind of. Okay. Kind of. You have been reborn. See, fucking cult. I told you. Basically, they are. Yeah. Basically, you know, the one on TV where they put their hand on you and you go back and you're healed. Mm-hmm. That's it's not. But I can see what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Okay. Before the start of the therapy, they took Candace off of all of her medicine, you know, because that's really what you're supposed to do with fucking antipsychotics. Just stop them. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. No, the fuck it's not. Yeah. Don't just stop your medicine, people. No. That's that is the last thing that you need to do. It's, Even like steroids, people. I know it has to fucking be tapered. Don't just stop taking your medicine. Follow as directed by your physician. Yes. Or nurse practitioner or whoever your provider is. So she's not taking the amphetamines for her ADHD anymore. She's not on her antidepressants. She does take one medicine still that is supposed to calm her down. And Jean said that basically this is because Candace had, quote, assaultive behavior. But it was never said, like, specifically, like, in what way, you know? So this these two weeks were supposed to be Full of therapy sessions with Connell Watkins, who, again, was not fucking licensed. Mm-hmm. So they get there. The therapy begins. She's on that medication that calms her. It's basically making her a zombie. But the therapy begins. They start doing what they called compression therapy. And basically, this was to simulate her like going through the birth canal. Okay being reborn so she was wrapped up very tightly in sheets but her head was out and so she would have to lay on the floor wrapped tightly in these sheets with cushions all over her and then Jean would like lay on top of her in essence they were lying perpendicular to one another kind of like making a T okay and so the idea of this was that Jean was on top of her like kind of a, the in charge position. And so that would, and I, I did air quotes, and that would kind of help to reset Candace's brain to recognize Jean as being the mother and the one in charge. And then they would do this for three hours. No one can be a human burrito for three hours. Mm-hmm. Then when that was finished, that three hours was up, Candace had to lay in the fetal position in Jean's arms while Jean fed her to simulate being a baby and those needs being met. If y'all could see Donna's fucking face right now, she looks like that witch gif from Snow White that's going under the, you know what I'm talking about? The one I always sent that's confused. Yes. When she's like, her eyes are going back and forth. Yes. I'm too fat to get in the fetal position. Well, you're not 10 years old. So this is only for kids? I guess. Okay. Well, 10-year-olds can be big shit. I was. <laughs> I was too. <laughs> I'm just thinking, I don't know. But did she feed her with a bottle? I think so. Okay, because that's where I was like, wait, 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 wait. This, uh, I don't, mm. Yeah, I think so. Okay. I mean, that's, mm, but better than what my mind went to. Mm. 
Thank God it wasn't. Yeah, that, too much. On April 18th of 2000, Candace is in a therapy session with a therapist named Julie Ponder. They're at Connell Watkins' house. Sorry, I know it's a lot of names. Now, Julie Ponder is a therapist. And she ponders. Without a license. Oh, gosh. I love how these people just make up titles for themselves. Well, okay. So, to set the scene, like I said, Candace, Julie, she has these, quote, therapeutic foster parents who were there, which were actually, like, I think Connell's assistants, maybe. Like, they were in school or something. I forget. Anyway, Britta St. Clair and Jack McDaniel, they were there. And then the adopted mother, Jean. So the therapy session starts, and it's all recorded. When Candace gets in there, she's tired. She's yawning. She tells him that she didn't sleep very well, that she had a nightmare, and that this is a recurring nightmare. And in the dream, she's being murdered by her birth mother, to which the therapist replies, and I'm using that term loosely, you know, that Jean loves her and... You know, it's going to take care of her, all the things. So then the rebirthing process of the therapy session starts. So Candace is wrapped, like I said, in the flannel sheet and all the things. There's a few people there. Like I said, Julie Ponder, the quasi-therapist. Connell Watkins, who we know too, sucks, fake, all the things. His office manager, Britta St. Clair. Her fiancé, Jack McDaniel. And Jean. I know that's a lot of people, but it's important. Britta and Jack are there to act as Candace's, like, quote, therapeutic foster parents. And I think that that, even though I'm like, I don't know what that means, I think it's to, like, aid in her, like, acceptance and processing of the rebirth through the process of being a fo- in foster system into adoption. The other thing that all of those fucking people are there for is... To create that compression that we talked about earlier, again, to simulate the womb. And in that simulation, okay, think about this. All of those adults, all this stuff has said a combined weight of like 673 pounds on this 70-pound child. Holy shit. Yeah. Look, I can't do math right, but I even know that does not add up. No, no. Whoa, that hurts my like chest just thinking about it. I legitimately like have to keep, I know Will's cutting them out, but like I have to keep taking deep breaths looking at this transcript because it gives me so much anxiety. So the session starts off with Ponder telling Candace, imagine yourself as a teeny little baby inside your mother's womb and what it felt like warm it felt tight because her stomach was all around you and then she says what do you think you thought about when you were in there candace said i thought i was gonna die then Jean says and again i'm cutting some some things because i'm not reading y'all everything so Jean says i'm so excited i'm gonna have a brand new baby i hope it's a girl i'm going to love her to hold her and tell her stories i'm going to keep her safe every day we'll be together and she will be with me forever so they asked Candace if she believed what Jean was saying, and she said, uh-huh. And then they asked Candace how that makes her feel, and she said, happy. Oh, my gosh. Then 
Connell says, If a baby doesn't decide to be born, she will die. When the baby decides to be born, it's a wonderful thing. So then they ask her, is she ready to be born? And she's like, uh-huh. Goo goo gaga. I mean, if we're role-playing here. I mean. So they tell her she has to come out head first. If you stay in there, you're going to die and your mommy's going to die. And at this point, Candace is like, who's sitting on me? I can't do it. She starts crying and she's like, I can't do it. My hands come out first. And then about a minute later, she's like, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't breathe. Whoever's pushing on my head, it's not helping. I can't do it. It's too dark under here. After a couple more minutes have passed, Ponder says, do you want to be reborn or do you want to stay in there and die? And then she says, quit pushing on me, please. Quit squishing my legs. I'm going to die now. A couple of minutes later, they ask Jean, are you feeling the contractions, mom? And she's like, I am. Oh, shut up, Jean. I know. I know. Like, y'all. That is so like Handmaid's Tale when the people are having birth Mm -hmm. and they're like, like all around the quote unquote mom mm-hmm. that's not giving birth. Mm-hmm. And it's like, bitch, you down there having a mimosa mm-hmm. and she up there having a natural damn birth mm-hmm. that your husband raped her. Anyway, I'm just saying, like, Jean, mind your business. Over the next few minutes, Candace is saying she's going to die. She asks for oxygen. She asks if she dies right now, is she going to go to heaven? Julie Ponder says, go ahead and die right now, for real, for real. Candace said, okay, I'm dead. I ain't defending this. But they say this is a part of the rebirthing process. Like, basically, like, the old you is kind of dying. I don't know. This is fucking stupid. It is when she's like, you need to be born, because if you stay there, you're going to die, and the mom's going to die. Are you ready to be born? Yes. And then now she got to die up in there? Yeah, I don't know. To be reborn? But then they say, okay, but then she's like breathing very heavily and she's like, get off. I'm sick. Get off. Where am I supposed to come out? Where? But how do I get there? And Connell says, just go ahead and die. It's easier. It takes a lot of courage to be born. Then 19, almost 20 minutes in, Candace throws up inside that blanket. Then like almost 22 minutes in, she has a bowel movement inside there. And Connell says, stay in there with the poop and vomit. And she says, help, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. It's hot. And then Jean's like, I'm so excited to have this baby. I'm waiting for you to love you and hold you. Fuck you, Jean. At 32 minutes, Jack repositions himself like on Candace's head. And Julie Ponder's like, Candace? She didn't respond. And so she says, she takes a pillow from Jean and she's like, she needs more pressure over here. So she can't, she really needs to fight. And so it's like they're like egging her on being like, there's less air in there. You're in there with your poop. You're in there with your vomit to like make her like, quote, want to be born. They call her a quitter. It's like they're trying to like, I don't fucking know, but they tell her she's a quitter. And at minute 40 and one second, Candace says no. They start saying quitter over and over and over and over and over again. Eventually, Britta, Jack, and Jean leave. They're continuing to call her a fucking quitter. Then fucking Julie Ponder and Connell Watkins start talking about just chit-chat. Like, 
oh, this is my dream home and it's like a million dollar property, but it needs to be remodeled. Then Connell Watkins says, because it's just him and Julia in there. And they say, let's talk to the twerp. They unwrap Candace at an hour and nine minutes. He says, oh, there she's sleeping in her vomit. Jean walks in and Candace is blue. Oh my goodness. Jean immediately starts doing CPR on her. When she said no, that was her last word. Wow. Well, and like Julie Ponder is like, hey, you in there? No, no sound. She's like, okay, put some more pressure over here. Like, there's no fucking sound. Mm -hmm. Why are you like, let's put some more pressure over here? Mm -hmm. She was silent for 30 minutes. Holy Hannah. So they call 911. The paramedics get there. She's got some blood around her nose. She's blue and cold to the touch. The, the paramedics are going to say, who's the doctor in charge? And they're all going to be like, uh, mm-hmm. uh, technically we're not licensed, but we have all the experience we need. Well, the paramedics get a pulse. You know, they're doing their work. They get a fucking pulse. They take her by helicopter to the hospital in Denver. But she was declared brain dead the next day because of asphyxia. Oh, my goodness. Bless her heart. Bless her heart. She even had a brainstem herniation. Like it was crushed? It was like poked out, basically. Mm. And she's she was 10? Mm-hmm. Well, here's the thing. They had fucking videotape of it all. Oh, my goodness. They had videotape of this session. They had videotapes from the 10-hour sessions before. And the thing is, none of them fucking had a license. Yeah. They should, I mean, aside from the fact this is fucking hocus-pocus bullshit therapy to begin with, none of them had a license to practice. I mean, honestly, I feel like this was in, like, 2000, right? Yeah, yeah. They could have just had a fucking course from Wipeout. I'm just saying, like, you know, they go through all these things. Instead of having 675 pounds on top of a 10-year-old. I know. You know what I mean? Like, mm, Yeah. Like, she's 10, 70 pounds. Literally, we could have had a fat cat on her and it had been like, there's pressure. Yeah. So, they ended up charging them all. Good. Sorry, I got my angry voice on. No, it's okay. Connell Watkins and Julie Ponder were tried and convicted of reckless child abuse resulting in death. And they got 16-year prison sentences. 16 years? That's it? Then, Britta St. Clair and Jack McDaniel, they pled guilty to criminally negligent child abuse. And they were given 10 years probation and 1,000 hours of community service. Are you fucking kidding me? Jean pled guilty to neglect and abuse, and she was given a four-year suspended sentence, after which the charges were expunged from her record. No. Mm -hmm. Look, look, she might have had good intentions to help. I get that. But good intentions that ends with a death? Mm Mm-hmm. It's still bad. Mm -hmm. It's still... Murder. Yeah, it's still 
negligence. It's still murder. Yes. Also, I feel like Connell and Ponder, Mm -hmm. they should have something with like, they were doing therapy without a license. Mm -hmm. Well, and here's the thing. Connell, like I said, sentenced to 16 years. He served seven. Are you kidding me? Mm -mm. Like they're out. They're out. And they killed this girl. This innocent fucking child. That they called a fucking twerp after they murdered her. And a quitter over and over and over and over again. And basically told her she was too weak to do the rebirth. With almost 700 pounds on her. Ten times her weight. Wow. Colorado and North Carolina did enact a law called Candace's Law, and it outlawed, like, reenactments of the birth experience. I mean, that's... Well, Lottie fucking I know. I was going to say, that's little to no... What's the word I'm trying to say? legal anyway. This shit wasn't legal. Girl, I fucking know. And you... the, The shit that I did not read from that transcript, like, just... Over and over again, her pleading for her life. And they're like, well, it's just part of the process. No, the fuck it isn't. She could not breathe. It's so heartbreaking to think about. All she had was traumatic experiences in her life and in her death. death. Mm -hmm. Y'all, this episode was so fucking heavy. Am Am I just like projecting or something on the story? Because this story has fucked me up. Like, I feel like I can't breathe. You know what I mean? It's like I can just feel that weight on her. And, I mean, it's not the right word for it, but it just, it it's soul crushing. And I feel the anxiety and I feel the well, fear you, for her. Well, you are dealing with anxiety right now, too. True. And maybe from this. I don't know, but this was a heavy fucking week for me. Yeah. No, this is a heavy story. It is. I mean, it's got me fucking fired up because... It's bullshit. It is. Oh, my God. People are in jail for selling weed a small ounce. Like, whatever ounces. I don't know. I don't do it. But, like, they're in jail longer than these people. Yep. (laughs) Like... Who smothered a child. And recorded it. All of this shit. Like, because they're like, we doing it, like... And, and just like, well, that wasn't supposed to happen. Yeah. She died. She wasn't reborn. Well, no, because she's not Jesus fucking Christ, and she's not <laughs> rolling the rock away. Fuck. <laughs> well, Donna is lit, y'all. But it's so interesting how... It minds the injustice of it. Yours is, she died. And I'm like, that's sad. But these people need to be punished. Yeah. I mean, me too about the injustice. Like, because you, cause you're yeah. so fucking right. It's like, our justice system is just so unfair in that way. All right, let's um do something to end this damn episode. Sad ass shit. We started off this year emotionally. First episode right out the gate, I got Donna lit. Yes. The only thing that would piss me off even more would be, do you not know? Brandon Dassey? No. No. What's his face that you hate so much? Chris fucking Watts. Mm-hmm. I could do that case because Donna would talk the whole damn time. Y'all, literally, if she did that case, I'd be like, no, the fuck he didn't. This is what it happened. Uh-huh. She would tell you all the facts. 
she would start and be like, hold on, no, I have a murder board. <laughs> and like, uh-uh. Let's do Facebook Live real quick. Where's your laser pointer? Oh, I can't stand him. Okay, so our justice system still fucking sucks. People take small truths and fuck it all up. This just reminds me, too, like, of Bad Batch, Dr. Mm-hmm. Death, all of the things. Shrink next door. Yes. It's like medical shit is so above everyone. Because, I mean, like, you know, doctors go to school for, you know, 50 years. And so I don't understand it. So when you say, like, it's rooted in some truth, like, I can get with the compression stuff a little mm-hmm. bit because, I mean, like, when I'm having my attacks and I'm like, yeah, anxiety, you're like, push down on my shoulders. And I'm like, Ugh. it's calming. Yeah. Weighted blankets. We know yeah. that's all the rage. Like, okay, but not 675 pounds. Mm-hmm. You know, like, mm, too much. Well, I think we've talked about this. You have to, you, in the medical field, you are still a customer. You are still the consumer. And you have every right to ask questions. You are your own advocate. And don't feel like just because someone has a different degree than you, or period, that you can't ask questions. Hell yeah. Or intervene in your own behalf. hmm In this situation, it's just unfortunate that... Jean was drinking that Kool-Aid. Exactly. And she was feeling those contractions. And then how's she going to leave? I think they had her leave. I'm not sure. Because she was like watching it on the monitor. How's she going to leave? Like, mm, this is not how someone's reborn. I don't know. I don't know. But you're trying to put logic with the logical. I know. Here's the thing. We have folklore Mm -hmm. at the beginning. And it's like, here's kids. Who are different mm-hmm. in some way. Mm-hmm. We're going to do experiments. And if it fucks them up, it fucks them up. What it, you're like, what it do, boo? That's mm-hmm. how it is. And then we have them in the year 2000 where a kid is different in some kind of way. And they're like, we're just going to do an experiment on them. And if it fucks them up, it fucks them up. Mm-hmm. That's terrible. I agree. And we did not plan this, y'all. No. So it's like folklore, but uh, hello, it's the same thing. Well, happy fucking New Year. (laughs) You know what? In three days, you'll have a sinister sightings to forget all about this episode. Maybe it'll be more lighthearted. Or in our case right now, at all. Lighthearted in any fucking way. Mm -hmm. You know what? To end on a really light note, Carrie took a picture of me today. (laughs) And my hair was fucked up because I just woke up, ran down here after I got breakfast for us. And, you know, like, bed hair don't care. She took it and I said, oh, my God, I look like Gargamel from the Smurfs. She did. Actually, I said you looked like Ace Ventura. But then when she said Gargamel, I was done. I was like, yep, you sure fucking do. I do. So... She's going to do a side-by-side comparison, so... Be on the lookout for that. Mm-hmm. So when you're, like, down in the dumps and you're like, what is this episode? Why am I so sad? Just know that I am Gargamel. Mm-hmm. Or am I? Either way, remember... Creep it real... And, and don't, don't get scared. scared.